It's good to see you guys. How is everyone? How are you at home? Yeah. You know, um, I, I wonder whether you know that what we're doing right here in this moment is the most audacious, provocative, transformative, powerful, creative thing that we could ever do. That right now in this moment, there is a power amongst us. That there is an authority that's here that has been God created and that is God sustained. That there is a movement in this room of God's purposes and his promises that no force, no demonic entity, that nothing could ever come against to hold it back or to contain it. I wonder if you realize that in this moment right now, as we gather together in this physical room and online with all the people that are watching, that we're doing something that has been purchased through the shedding of blood for almost 2,000 years. That the privilege of gathering in this moment has been forged in the fire of martyrdom and sacrifice. That, that this moment of our gathering together has come through two millennium of the worst political, social, and economic history that you could ever imagine. That what we're doing right now has with it such power and authority that God had decided it would happen right before the beginning of creation. That it's the reason why Jesus actually came to earth to die on the cross. That it's the reason why the Holy Spirit is at work in the world right now. So that when God's people gather together, something shifts and takes place in the world around it. I mean, I wonder if you've ever thought that what we can do together is far greater than what we would ever be able to achieve on our own. That the Bible would say when two or more are gathered, Jesus is with them. Have you ever thought about that? Not when you're on your own. Now, we know that when we're on our own, Jesus is with us too, amen? But the Bible has this force, has this suggestion that is audacious, that when we gather together, we should come to expect the kingdom of earth on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Jesus spoke of what we're doing in this moment as this. He said, this will be my body on earth. I want you to think about that for a second. My body on earth. What that means is, if anybody in the world wants to know what Jesus is like, wants to see Jesus, wants to understand what Jesus said and did, wants to know how to act like Jesus, wants to experience something of the power and the authority of Jesus, they should go to their local church. Like the local church should be the manifestation of the risen Jesus so that when anybody comes into a gathering like this, they should leave with nothing less than a profound encounter with the risen Jesus. That what we get to do here is not just come together and sing some pretty nice songs, but we get to model a new humanity to the world. That we get to show people what the risen Jesus has done for them. And in showing them that, they might have a new and fresh vision for life. I'm the only one who's excited about this. Are you with me? That this moment is literally 
world-changing. So let me ask you again. Do you realize that what we're doing right now is the most audacious, provocative, transformative, powerful, creative thing that we could ever do? That, my friends, is the church. It may not always feel like that's the church, but that's what Jesus died for. And the the little bit of passion that I've just tried to describe the church to you this morning is just a fraction of the passion that sat on Paul's heart as he penned the letter to the church in Philippi that we've come to call Philippians. Because Paul was so passionate that a church like it was in this city of Philippi could come to understand that their public witness of faith could have such a profound impact on their society that he writes this letter specifically to inspire them that the way in which they live together will model a fresh and new vision for life for everybody else. Philippians is Paul's most personal and intimate letter. Because he loved the church in that city. But it was a church that was perhaps out of the whole Greco-Roman Empire, the one that was under more persecution than any other church in the whole of that empire. Out of every single church that Paul ever planted, the one in Philippi had the hardest yards to walk when it came to their relationship with the authorities around them. And Paul writes this letter to them in prison himself. I want you to follow this. Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, writing a letter to a church that is deeply suffering for their faith through the oppression of the authorities around them. And he's writing to them, knowing the pain of that. And he writes to them and says, I want you to shine like stars in the universe. I want you, despite the suffering that you're experiencing right now, to know the deep abiding wonder of living a life that's worthy of the gospel. See, Paul understood that salvation, yes, of course, had an individual impact. He, he, he wrote and taught a theology of salvation for the individual, coming to Christ having this change in our relationship with God individually. And that change creating for us an ability for us to know eternal life and hope. Paul understood that, but in that, he always taught beyond just the individual. He always taught that if you came to Christ as an individual, yes, you might be reconciled to God. Yes, you might have this eternal life with you, but you need to understand that you're saved in order to have a different spirit in you Paul would call it a new creation. And as a different spirit, you need to then come and work and live in a different community. See, see, we've been talking here at the Vine this whole year about what it is to have a different spirit. And the reason why we're now shifting our focus to a seven-week study on the book of Philippians is because in this book, we see Paul theologically go, if you've got a different spirit, then you need to live in a different community that there needs to be a way for you to now live in a way where together you do something that's more powerful than you would ever do on your own. So in April to May, I preached to you about what it is to have a different spirit for yourself, what it is for you to live with a different spirit in this time of Hong Kong's important history. 
from here until November, I want to now teach you, yes, we've got a different spirit in us, but we also need to have a different community. We also need to be a different church for the hour that we're in. Because when we get saved, we don't just get saved into a personal relationship with Jesus. We get saved into a community called the church. And we get saved into this wonderful gift of now being able to walk together in the profound and provocative and audacious reality that we get to show the world what Jesus looks like. Are you with me? In other words... We're saved to be a part of what I like to call an alternative society. Not something that's up on a hill removed from everything else, but something planted right in the midst of all the other societies of this world that gets to model a different way of life. Jesus spoke of this alternative society as the kingdom of God. Paul writes of it in Philippians as the ecclesia. We've come to commonly call it the church. What I want to do over the next seven weeks is recapture for us the beautiful, profound vision that Paul had for the local church. But by focusing in on the the book of Philippians, as we look at one particular church in a oppressive Greco-Roman empire, I want us to understand that the original vision that the New Testament has for what the gathering of God's people is and all about might have something important to say to what the gathering might look like or need to look like for us in our city of Hong Kong today. Are you with me? So let me tell you a little bit today about Philippi and then about the church that was planted there. Philippi as a city was located in the northeast of Greece. Uh, The map here will show you, it's the little city that's at the top of the map there, uh, kind of adjacent to a city called Nicopolis that was uh, a city that eventually got consumed within Philippi itself. It was founded in 350 BC by the Thassos, And soon after they founded the city, they called on the leader of Macedon at the time, his name was Philip II, to come and help them to defend their city against foreign invaders. Soon afterwards, uh, Philip renamed the city after himself, and that city became one of the wealthiest that there was in the land at the time, largely because it had gold mines in its region, and Philip mined the gold and then sold it around the world. In 186 BC, the Romans took over the city, just like Romans did in those days. And they came and they took that city because they saw it as a strategic port for trade amongst themselves. And from 186 onwards, that city was predominantly Roman in its understanding and the way it lived its life. In fact, in 43 BC, an important moment happened in the Roman Civil War. An important battle takes place right in Philippi between Octavian on the one side, representing the empire, and and a bunch of other people on the other side who are representing the rebellion against that empire. And Octavian has a famous and successful victory over them, drives the rebels out of Philippi, and Octavian takes his personal um, kind of authority over the city at that time. By 31 BC, Octavian does something really important. He realizes that he needs to attract wealth to come down from Italy to be in Philippi. He wants to fill Philippi with a whole bunch of Italians who are now living as expats there, essentially. And so what um, Octavian does is something very clever. He calls Philippi, he renames, well not names it, but he reestablishes it as what's known as Ius Italium. What that meant was in Italy. 
So anyone now living in Philippi would have the same rights, the same citizenship, would pay the same taxes as if they were actually living in Italy. What this meant was if you're a wealthy person in Italy, Philippi was a great place for you to come and settle to grow your wealth because it would be exactly the same tax district, exactly the same laws, exactly the same citizen status as if you'd never left Italy at all. And this brilliant move by Octavian actually doubled Philippi in its size over the hundred years between when he decreed the city to be like that to when Paul eventually visits it about a hundred years later. What's central to Philippi is that move. It was a place of Roman citizenship. And living in Philippi came with a great sense of pride that you were exactly like you were living in Italy itself. So the same laws, the same powers, the same tax district. Not only that, but the same religious fervor. And in the Greco-Roman Empire, that religion was towards all the Greco-Roman gods. But at the top of that was worship of Caesar. This is really important. That by the time that Paul arrives in the city, emperor worship is the central religion of that city. And they're worshiping Octavian, who eventually became known as Caesar Augustus. And although he had long died by the time of Paul's presence, the city still revolved around him. You can find inscriptions in Philippi that say this, to the worship of Caesar Augustus, our Lord and Savior. To Augustus, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. To Augustus, who has and holds all eternal life. So I wonder if you could imagine what it would have been like for Paul to arrive in this city with the gospel in his heart. He arrives into a place where the people are worshiping Caesar with titles like Lord and Savior, Sustainer and Creator, the one who holds eternal life. And there's Paul saying, hang on a second. This is the very antithesis of what the gospel was all about. And and Paul arrives in the city with this dangerous new idea that it's not actually Caesar who is Lord and Savior, but actually a carpenter from a city called Nazareth. That actually the one who is the creator and sustainer of all is Jesus, not Caesar Augustus. That actually the place where you find your citizenship, listen to this, is not Italy, it is heaven. And, And Paul begins to formulate the gospel in his heart and he stands dangerously against all of the philosophy and the social structures of Philippi at that time. Can can you get a sense of the courage Paul must have had to go there? Are are you with me still? This is all important that you carry with you because I want to talk to you now about the church that he founded there. Paul received a vision to go to Philippi um, from the Holy Spirit whilst he was asleep one night. It's called the Macedonian call. You can read about it in Acts 15 and 16. And he shows up there in about 49 AD. And he goes there, and the first person he leads to Jesus is a woman. Her name is Lydia, and he meets her just outside the gates of the city by a stream. And she's washing and preparing the cloths that she has made. She is a merchant in purple cloths. And purple cloths in those days were incredibly expensive because of the dye that was used to make them. So they were only ever purchased by wealthy people, likely the people that ruled and were over the higher elite classes of the city. This was her job. She would have been wealthy herself, making wealthy clothes for wealthy people. Essentially, she was the Gucci of Philippi. Are you with me? And he brings her to Jesus. 
He tells her that it's not Augustus who is Lord and Savior, that it is this person, Jesus, who's died and risen for her so that she could have reconciliation with God and know what it is to have the fullness of life. And she comes to faith, her whole family, and the church starts in her home. Now, this church is an amazing thing. It's filled with all different kinds of people. There's wealthy and then there's the poor. There are free people and there are slaves. There are the old and they are the young. And by the time that Paul writes his letter to the church in Philippi, that church has grown to a tremendous 30 people. I know you, you thought I was going to say more than that, didn't you? Isn't it funny how we, when we think about church, especially if you come to the vine, you think of church something like this, you know? I don't know, we're 2,000 people over the whole Sunday, something like that in normal times. At the moment, we're 1,000 people over the Sunday at 50%. That's large, it's big. The church that Paul was passionate about, the one he was writing to, the one that was struggling under great oppression, that church, 30 people in a house, slaves and frees, wealthy and poor, young and old together. There was no other society or gathering of people that looked like this in any other part of the Greek or Roman Empire. It was only in a church where you would get the slave and the free to be equal together. This is an alternative society planted in the midst. And Paul's writing to them with such passion on his heart because he's saying you need to have a witness for Jesus in this time. You see, there were two things that were happening for the church. Are you guys all tracking with me? Okay. Two things were happening with the church. Here's the first one. I've already mentioned it. Extreme persecution. Paul understood this persecution because he had been persecuted himself in Philippi. In fact, he had been sent to prison in Philippi. It's an amazing story. You can read it later in Acts 16. But there's Paul and Silas. They're walking through the town one day, and a slave girl behind them starts to cry out, These are servants of the Most High God. Now, we're told in Scripture that she had a demonic spirit in her and that men were abusing her with that demonic spirit so that she could be a fortune teller and make them money. And after two or three days of Paul and Silas walking around and having this woman following behind them going, these are the servants of the Most High, Paul is so annoyed that he turns around and he says, in Jesus' name, be gone. And the demon leaves her straight away. And because the demon leaves her, she's no longer a use to the men who are making money out of her, which is the complaint that ends up putting Paul and Silas in prison. Now, I haven't got time for this, but can I tell you a story? Yeah. I'm just going to tell it anyway. I've done this myself. Yeah. So here's the story. I was on the bus once, the 962. I got on from Central, and I was going all the way to Tunmun. Anyone taking that bus ride? It's a long bus ride. It's like an hour and 40 minutes. Everybody falls asleep, right? Like everybody's there kind of trying to mind their own business. You know what it's like awkwardly on a public bus. We've all got our headphones on. We're trying to kind of keep things on our own and whatever. Anyway, about 20 minutes into the journey, there's this man about three rows in front of me who suddenly starts freaking out and shouting and screaming. And he's really aggressive. And he's talking about how everybody on the bus is going to be uh, taken over by zombies. I kid you not. And he's really freaking people out. And I, I've had enough experience with demonic manifestations in my pastoral life over 20 years that I can discern the difference between what is maybe a mental health episode and what is a demonic thing. And I knew straight away this was a demonic manifestation. And so as this man is shouting at everybody at the top of his lungs about zombies, I shout, in the name of Jesus, be gone. And immediately he falls asleep, like straight away. It was the most amazing thing. And I was like, whoa. 
That was cool. <laughs> the woman next to me was like, what just happened? And I was like, yes, I have no idea. What? Anyway, I told her a little bit about what just happened and Jesus and everything. And I'd like to say she came to faith. I think she left the bus freaked out even more. But, but it was an amazing experience of how God breaks into the here and now. That our citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth. And so here's Paul and Silas. They've just done this. They get thrown in jail. They're in this jail. It's an oppressive place, but they're singing their hearts out with worship. They're rejoicing Jesus so much that they're in chains that an earthquake happens, breaks their chains, and they're set free. The jailer is so freaked out about it that he runs into the room and says, hang on a sec, if you escape, I'm going to be killed, me and my whole family. They lead the jailer to Jesus. They take him to the river, the same place where they've met Lydia, and baptize him. His whole family comes into the church and adds the church, and now they're 34. <laughs> this is Paul's work in Philippi. It's transformative and miraculous, and it's happening small. But he still writes to this church, and he says, don't you realize that what you're doing right now is the most audacious, provocative, transformative, powerful, and creative thing you could ever do? This is the church, and it's alive. So there's persecution happening in this church, deep persecution, because if people believe Jesus in this environment, and they worship Jesus over Caesar, that's going to bring them into trouble. The second thing that's happening is this. This is fascinating to me. Divisions are happening in the church. Anytime that you find the church under pressure from society around it, you're always going to find that church become more and more divided. It always seems to be the way that disunity grows when there seems to be pressure from without. And in Philippi, just a small little church of 30 plus people, division starts to happen. And in Philippians, Paul writes to the different leaders of these different factions, and he says to them, what are you doing? Why are you going like this? You are part of the body of Christ, and you might have different opinions about stuff that's happening in the world around you, but you are united by one spirit. That, that no matter what differences of opinion you might have, there is the Spirit of God at work in you, and that draws you together. So you've got a church that is suffering under an increasing amount of persecution, and you've got a church, because of that, that is finding itself divided politically. I wonder if Philippi reminds you of something. Are you with me? This is why I want to take seven weeks to say, well, what did Paul say to this group of people? Because perhaps what Paul said to them might have something important to say to us in this hour of Hong Kong that we find ourselves in. I think we need to recapture the vision of the provocative, audacious, powerful, transformative, comforting, healing, renewing thing that is the church. So here's how Paul does it. Is this interesting, by the way, so far? So far? We got seven weeks of this, so it better be interesting for you. Otherwise, I'm going to have to tell more public transport stories to keep you awake. <laughs> but let me break down Philippians. The letter was written as one letter by Paul. We broke it into four chapters when we put it together for the Bible. But those chapters help the flow of Paul's argument. So let me show you what Paul's argument is. Chapter one, he basically says this. The gospel, despite our assumptions and fears, is unstoppable. It is like a rushing river. Unimpeded by persecution, chains, or human leaders. Can I have an amen? amen? 
Here's the second chapter. The story of Jesus Christ guides the way to what it means to live a victorious life, a life that we can be empowered to live before a watching world. You see, for Paul, the church was never supposed to be a private thing. It was always a public thing that shows the world something about Jesus. Chapter 3. The gospel demands a complete transformation towards a crucified life in Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is our model and path. In other words, if we want to be a public expression, it can't be of our politics. It can't be of just what we think we believe. It can't be of our whatever it might be. It has to be the cruciform life in Jesus. In other words, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And the more that we come to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, the better we are representatives of his body on earth. And then in chapter 4, he says, The God of the gospel is a God of peace and glory. While we may face many trials, we live in joy, thanksgiving, and hope. Like, if you truly believe that he is the one who brings a gospel that's unstoppable, I mean, if you truly believe that that gospel is centered on Jesus Christ, that we can live in a way before the watching world that says something about Jesus, if we center ourselves in his death and resurrection, then despite what might be happening around us, we can know joy. Paul's in prison as he writes to a church that feel like they're in prison. And he's saying to them, even in your midst of what you're going through right now, you can know joy. Because joy is not based on circumstance. Joy is based on a person, and his name is Jesus. So let me show you, as I draw to a close, I'm sure you're happy to hear, Let me read to you the central passage of Philippians. It's found in Philippians 1, verses 27 to 29. But it's the central thesis that he has for the whole book. Let me read this to us. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending together for the faith of the gospel." without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. This is Paul in his most gracious and loving and in his most sobering and challenging I want to break this down for you real quick. Notice how he starts. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's all about Jesus, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. And in the gospel, we can stand firm. He wants the church to stand firm. He doesn't want the church to wilter under the pressure. He doesn't want the church to believe every wind of teaching. It's the gospel and only the gospel. And we stand rooted on that. Jesus would say, that's like building your house on a rock. Not building your house on sand. So we as a church are to stand firm together on the gospel. He says this, so you strive together as one. I don't want divisions amongst you, Paul's writing to the church. Like if you're divided, you will fall. Like you've got to be united together. And the way you get united together, know that there's one spirit. One spirit that you worship, not a bunch of different spirits. There's one gospel, one Jesus, one spirit. And the oneness of God is the entry place to your oneness together. And in your oneness together, you're then able not to be frightened in any way by those who will oppose you. Paul is honest with the church. There are going to be people that will oppose you if you stand for Jesus over and above everything else because it will jar up at some point against the rest of the philosophies and ideas of the world. 
And because of that, that opposition is going to come. But you don't need to fear the opposition. Why? Because you're not alone. You're together. Because you're united with one spirit. And with one spirit, you can walk forward with courage in this time. He then says this, so that you may have to and be prepared to suffer for him. This is strong, personal, real, because Paul is in chains writing this to a church that knows what it is to suffer. But he says, you don't do it alone. You do it on the gospel. You do it united together by one spirit. So you don't have to fear whatever happens to you. I'm in chains, but I am rejoicing because we're living a life that's worthy of the gospel. And that's what he says right here at the start. He uses this word, conduct yourself. Very quickly, in the Greek, this word is the word polituomai. Polituomai is a Greek word by which we get our common English words, political and politics. Um, that also comes from the, uh, the Latin word of polis, which means for the people. Polituomai is only used by Paul in two occurrences in the whole of the New Testament. And both of those occurrences are in the book of Philippians, here and in chapter 3. Essentially, what the word means is this, to be a citizen or to administer the civil affairs of something. Now, I wonder why Paul uses a political word about citizenship and puts it into the letter to a church based in Philippi. Based on everything that I've said so far, do you understand why he's doing that? Because remember what I said right at the start. Philippi was a city proud about its citizenship that it worshipped Caesar Augustus as Lord and Savior, and it enjoyed the same citizenship as everything in Italy. Paul writes to them and says, the way you are to live as a church is to polituomai around Jesus Christ, to have him as the main force of your life, so that your citizenship is on behalf of the gospel, not on behalf of some world system. Your citizenship is heaven, and it's not something that you would discover or find on earth. He's writing to a bunch of people that are being persecuted, and he's saying to them, the ultimate place that you find your freedom and your allegiance and your citizenship is not Italy, it's not Rome, it's Jesus. This is dangerous stuff. But Paul is doing this not because he's trying to stir up some rebellion amongst his people. It's really important you hear me say this. Paul is not trying to stir up anarchy amongst the church in the society. He's not trying to get his church to rebel against society. What he's doing is saying this. When it ultimately comes down to it, you have a choice. Is your allegiance primarily going to be to Jesus or is it going to be to Caesar? There will be a time that if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that gospel will at some point bring you into opposition with the other philosophies and ideologies of your age. And when it does, you're likely to suffer for it. And in that suffering, you have a choice. Will you be a citizen of heaven or will you be a citizen of earth? He, he, he's saying to them that you are to administer your civil affairs today in society as if you are actually already living in heaven. That like you're on a bus and someone's manifesting a demon, you cast that demon out. Another way of writing one, uh, Philippians 1.27 would be this. Go back one. Whatever happens in life, you are to administer together your civic affairs in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus. Could you imagine that? 
that we would administer our civil affairs. In other words, the things that we do as a church in public in a way that brings honor and glory to the gospel. In a way that enables us as a church to stand strong and stand firm. Not in rebellion. This is the same Paul that writes to the church in Rome and says that governments are instructed and put there by God's Spirit. That we are to give, as Jesus would say, to Caesar what is Caesar. This is the same Paul. He's not calling for rebellion, but he is calling for an allegiance to Jesus. And he is saying that in that allegiance, you have to be prepared that it might bring you up against things that oppose it. Will we stand firm? I think that's a great challenge for the church in Hong Kong in the years ahead. And I think alone, I'm freaking out. Together, we stand united. We stand with one spirit, an alternative society, the kingdom of God, the ecclesia, the church, believing that with the gospel held forth, we could shine like stars in the universe. With the gospel held forth, we could see many people come into the saving knowledge of Jesus. With the gospel held forth, we could together begin to model something of what it is to see the glory of God on earth. Why? So that we get some great holy huddle on a Sunday? No, so that many who are lost would find their Lord and Savior. Not Caesar, Jesus Christ. Can we stand together? I want to pray for us. As we pray, I want to read that passage in Philippians, but from the message version, as I think it says something critical for us as we pray. So stand united, Vine Church, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message, the good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before opposition. For your courage and unity, Vine Church, will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. For there is far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. As we lean into that thought over the next seven weeks, can we pray? Father, we stand now together. We stand, Lord, as a church, like the church in Philippi, broken at times, bruised, a church where we know in the last couple of years there have been divisions and factions, differences of opinion that have driven wedges between people and relationships, between leaders and congregations and congregations and leaders. Father, we know that we're standing in a time and in an hour that much like the church in Philippi was a challenge to the gospel. But Lord, just as we see Paul write to the church in Philippi, that the gospel is unstoppable. I pray that as we open up this book over the next seven weeks, we as a church would recapture that grand vision that the church is able to show the world a new and fresh vision for life. One where those who are divided can come together in unity again. One where those that have their own challenges can find in unity with others the grace to see those challenges overcome. A church that is the most audacious, provocative, transformative, powerful, creative thing that there is on earth. Because together, we are the body of Christ. Lord, I pray for the body of Christ here at the Vine. 
I pray, Lord, that this would be a shifting time for us in this season of this particular series. I pray that over the next seven weeks, you would install into us a fresh passion for one another again. That we would look across the aisles and across the rows and have a desire to be in community with one another. That we would do all that we can to contend for the gospel. That we would do what we can in this hour of our city to live a life that's worthy of your gospel. And that we would do so not to be rebellious. We would do so because we are citizens of heaven given this great gift, this peace and this joy that comes upon us in the lightness of your gospel. And that in that, we can walk forward with courage and hope. That even in moments of struggle and strife and suffering, we can sing praises of joy. Lord, I pray that your vision for church would come and capture our hearts again. And that, Lord, you would strengthen us and strengthen your church across this city to bring the gospel more and more to a city that so desperately needs it. Lord, would you do that amongst us in these seven weeks, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen. Can we just uh, close in a little bit of worship now together?